Hi everybody, uh, welcome to Mental Health and Ministry. My name is Kyle Sack, I am the preaching minister at the Cordova Church of Christ. I have been there three and a half years. Prior to that, I was doing youth ministry in Antioch, California, at a little church known as the Eastside Church of Christ uh, for however long I was there. Uh, and I've been in Catholic... <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah, so that's my ministry. Um, before our panel introduces themselves, I want to just kind of talk about what we're going to do today, kind of our goals, uh, and everything's going to happen. Uh, so we have three goals uh, for our time together, and I guarantee you we are going to meet one of those goals. We will probably meet two of those goals because they're really easy to meet. And the third one, you know, just stay tuned and see what happens. So uh, our first goal in this class is to simply share our stories. Um, each of us lives with some kind of mental illness experience, whether it's our own, or whether it's a family member, or whether it's people in our church uh, who go to our church and we love them more days than we don't, we hope. Uh, so that's our first goal. And a lot of this is just sharing personal testimonies. Uh, the second thing we want to do is we want to model healthy dialogue about how to talk about mental illness in your churches. I don't know what your church is like. My church, even though we've talked about this off and on for two, three years now, there is still some bit of stigma around the topic of mental illness. Part of that uh, is simply because that phrase, mental illness, is ridiculously broad. You know, it covers a gambit of things, and none, none, none of those, uh, those topics, those categories, are all the same. Depression is not the same thing as anxiety. Schizophrenia is not the same thing as anxiety or depression. Being bipolar has a combination of all those things, but isn't the same thing either. PTSD, OCD, they're all different. Even within those individual categories, there are still a lot of differences as it relates to experiences, manifestations, and treatments. You can have two people with the same mental illness, and they will, it'll be expressed differently in both, and treatment for both will be very different. And this oftentimes is why a lot of us living with mental illness feel very marginalized, feel very fractured, because we see people who have what we have, but they get healing, and we're left with a mess, and we wonder, is it, is it my fault? Am I doing it wrong? Why am I not like this other person? So we're going to try to talk about that, try to destigmatize as much as one can in an hour. Lofty goals. Uh, and then our third goal is hopefully to encourage and equip you for having these conversations in your churches, whether it's in big group settings like this or whether it's just having coffee with friends uh, and so forth and so on. So uh, I'm going to pray. I'm hopefully not going to talk this much because this is a dialogue in theory. And they all know me, so they know that that may or may not happen. Uh, and then each of us are going to kind of introduce ourselves and share our stories and so forth and so on. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, how good it is to be with your presence, in your presence, with your people. How wonderful it is to know you and to be known by you. We pray for this time for honesty for openness, and we pray for our brothers and sisters who live with mental illness, who deal with it every day, those who, who have it chronically and those who just have an experience or a season. We, we pray that you as the great comforter will be present, will, will surround them with people who understand and who listen and who care. Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus. We thank you for sending us a way that our sins, our brokenness can be forgiven, can be healed. And we ask for the courage and the strength to be as forgiving as you are. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring about that age to come where mental illness will be gone and wiped away. And we will sing and dance in eternity with you around the throne. But until that time, Lord, may we be as faithful as we can be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so my, my brief experience in, uh, is uh, I worked with a minister uh, who, I'll let him tell that story because he's here. Uh, he was diagnosed with a mental illness. It escalated into some very 
scary and confusing times. Um, I, this is the first time it had ever happened to me. I didn't know anybody with a mental illness that I could recall. Uh, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, I remember in that time feeling very confused, feeling very scared. Uh, and if I'm being honest with myself and him, feeling kind of angry. Not at him, but I'm not really sure who I was angry at, but I was angry. Uh, and, and we got through that by the grace of God, and uh, he's thankfully still my friend, uh, and I am still his. He might say that. Um, and I'm very honored to have been in a part of that journey. My wife, a few years later, was diagnosed uh, with a general anxiety disorder. I did not handle it well. Um, I still felt very out of control. I felt a lot of anger and a lot of confusion again, mostly because I felt out of control. I had I, many days had no idea what to do when, when she is having an episode, when she's feeling anxious, when her medicine's not working, or she forgot to take it that day and the whole thing. And, um, and so I say all of that to say, if you're looking for the expert, it's probably one of them. I am a, a sojourner in this journey, simply trying to understand how to better love people uh, in their brokenness as we live life together. So that's my story, and I'll let each of them introduce themselves. Uh, Nisha, you want to go since you're there? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, my history of it is my family has dealt with mental illness to some extent. Um, and then the minister that you worked with is my husband. And so I went through that also with him. And it was very different than what my family had dealt with. And it also was very scary. Um, there was a lot of unknown and a lot of self-discovery in it as we went through it. Um, just for myself as who I am. Um, and then it's a day-to-day -day struggle, even now. He's not, it's not at his worst point, but it's, it's an illness that doesn't just go away. So it's a constant, and it is different every person. Just because one thing works for him doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. My name is Tian Dang. Uh, I'm a minister at the Campbell Church of Christ uh, up in NorCal. I, when I was, I'm 31 years old, when I was 17, I, I tried to commit suicide. Um, I was hospitalized for two weeks, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know why I wanted to commit suicide. It was just I wanted to escape the world. And so that was really my, my first experience of something massive, something immense like that, something overwhelming. Uh, we got married. This is my wife um, in 2011. Uh, and... Yes, right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> in 2011, we got married. Uh, we're, we're from California. We, we moved to Arkansas, and it was just totally new foreign environment for us. Our support system wasn't there. Um, and I realized that something was very different in the way we were handling conflict. We both come from really unhealthy families, but um, there was something really off. I felt like I was really focusing on my anger. I was holding on to it for, for hours and hours, apathy. Um, so I went to see a psychologist and was diagnosed with ADHD. In 2000, uh, in that language, being diagnosed with ADHD helped me understand myself better, helped my wife understand me better, um, to make sense of our, my experiences. In 2016, 2016, I was a lead minister in a church where I didn't feel like I belonged. Um, the only ethnic minority there for the most part. And this is also during a presidential election, and so that just, I mean, it was a very stressful, stressful time. And um, I was slipping back into really, really dark habits, depression, and just didn't want to do anything. Every day I was daydreaming about just running away to another state or whatever. I went to go see a therapist, and uh, several months in, he diagnosed me with PTSD. So that's my experience with so my name is Amanda. I'm wife of a minister. I'm also a student um, uh, currently in a master's of social work program. Um, my experience is both personal and familial. Uh, I have strong genetic components of both anxiety and depression. 
my grandfather killed himself, um, committed suicide, and my grandmother, and later on my other, you know, other side for years, um, decades, took uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicine, but it was very quiet. You know, my, my cousin later got diagnosed, my other cousin, um, so it was very quiet in my family until I started to do some digging of my own. I realized, um, so I was later diagnosed with major depressive disorder as well as generalized anxiety disorder with panic attacks. So um, waking up at night, feeling dread, feeling um, like adrenaline, like a shot of adrenaline is going through your body for no reason, right? Feeling um, your heart rate go up and hands shaky and having this whole panic attack experience, I was like, okay, something's wrong, um, which I've had, I, looking back, I had a few growing up, but I didn't know what it was. And so I didn't really even seek help um, until later on, until I was an adult, um, especially um, during that stressful time when um, Tian actually got diagnosed in so 2016. It was a difficult ministry context and my work was difficult. Um, I'm a social worker, so I was working with people. Um, and I vividly remember having a panic attack in my office. Like I had to lay down on the floor and I was like texting my husband, like, should I come home? Like, I don't know. And, and so that was like, okay, how can I help people and yet also be not getting help for myself? And so there was a huge um, um, level of, um, uh, maybe embarrassment, stigma of, of, of the helper needing help. Right, so, um, and then having the, the baggage of a very quiet family, um, not really discussing anything um, about it. So having to kind of overcome that silence. My name's Bryce Smith. Uh, I'm the one that scared Kyle and Nisha. <laughs> and uh, I've been in ministry for about 22 years. I was first diagnosed with depression when I was a junior here at Pepperdine. Uh, it was a huge relief for me. I actually didn't realize at the time that something was wrong with me, but <clears throat> I had gone home for Christmas, and my parents were like, you're not talking to anyone, you're not doing anything, and I didn't even, like, I didn't see the difference. But they did, and so I, I came back and um, started counseling and, and, and managed everything pretty well for several years. In 2013, I was not doing as well uh, again, and went to therapy and uh, they said, well, you, you know, I think this is just gonna help you, you just need someone to talk to you. So I went to therapy for a while, started feeling better. At the beginning of 2014, I was not feeling as well and uh, they put me on medication uh, for the first time. Um, and then by the end of 2014, while I was preaching at the Eastside Church in Antioch, um, I was in a very, very bad place and I told my wife that I didn't love her anymore and that I didn't know what the future of our marriage was. I told my mother-in-law also that I wasn't sure I loved her anymore, and that was a great conversation. Um, and uh, I wasn't sure I believed in God anymore. I didn't know who I was at all. And I remember having a conversation with a good friend, and he's like, well, what are you gonna do about this? I'm like, I don't know. What about that? I'm, I don't know. And I had, I was fortunate enough to be at a church that didn't just throw me away. Um, even though all of these things were true, they gave me time off, paid me even, and uh, I ended up having a complete emotional breakdown and was hospitalized in a facility in Oakland for about two days. And uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me, um, just because I got to meet a lot of people whose lives were very different from mine. Um, and I came home and everyone, uh, everyone kind of kept me a little bit at distance. My, my wife, uh, she basically saved my life because while family was telling her to leave me, uh, she refused. And she just, she just stayed with me until I came back to some semblance of, of someone that she knew. Um, and it took about four or five months for that to happen, but as it did happen, uh, it happened slowly. There was no aha moment. There was no uh, time where all of a sudden everything was better, but my view of myself in the world had completely changed, and so did my understanding of God. And I, for the first time in several years, I felt like I had something to really 
to really say to people. And so in the four years since then, I'm still on medication. I'm still uh, depressed. I view it like AA views alcoholism. Um, uh, I, but I've had the opportunity to talk to so many people, I've, high schools, churches, other places, and the one thing that I've gotten to do is to make it okay to not feel good about who you are and to normalize that a little bit. And, you know, you don't get a preacher who stands up and says, while I was preaching, I didn't believe in God and I thought I was gonna leave my life. And, but I, it's my story and it's the story of how, uh, how we all are broken, but that our brokenness is important to who we are. Uh, man. Uh, one thing that, that comes to mind, uh, something that is very important to help people understand, and no matter how many times I've had this conversation with people, it, it, takes, a t it takes some time for some people to get it. A mental illness is still a physical illness. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, yeah. it, it's in your brain, it's, it involves chemistry, it, it's like having a cold, it's like having cancer. Uh, that should shade how you have these conversations with people. It, it, they didn't, I, mean, I don't think any of you chose this. They didn't, Bryce didn't wake up one morning and think, I want to be depressed today. Tian didn't wake up one morning and think, I would like some PTSD. Like nobody made those choices. Um, but sometimes we treat them like they did. We are like, oh, well, if you just fix yourself, then you can come into our community. So uh, part, uh, here's a tip for you. Uh, if you want to have these conversations, here's, this is important. Let people tell their stories. Let people tell their truths. This is how we foster, this is how we begin to foster safety uh, in our communities, is letting people tell how they feel, tell how they are, tell who they are in a, in a way that you're not going to use as a weapon against them. Uh, and so part of this class is about that. So uh, I just want whoever wants to talk, go on in there. Is, Walk us through just a day when, when, you're, when you're in the worst of it. What's it like when your PTSD is, is active or, or, or a panic attack or your depression? Help us understand as best as we can what those experiences are like. So I, I've actually went through PTSD therapy for about a year and a half. The specific form of therapy used was called EMDR, which was extremely, extremely helpful, but one of the, uh, the roughest things I've been through in my life, and I've been through some stuff. And, um, and what it does is it helps you confront, it actually forces you to relive your trauma over and over and over and over until you become desensitized. Um, and so it's gotten a lot better, but it still comes back, because there's, there's still a lot of issues um, a lot of a lot of connections to my trauma. For me, the worst. What, what, I mean, I used to wake up in the middle of the night, like cursing and sweating, like night terrors, and I I wouldn't know why. My my wife would just shh, you know, just calm me down, and she was just a natural thing for her. I, I didn't know why I do. I just thought like I watched too much action movies, you know. Like <laughs> I was like oh, I'm just reliving my my fantasy like to to fight or something, I don't know. And I, I distinctly remember one time I was a youth minister out in Florida and we were at a youth retreat and it was 4 a.m. and everyone was sleeping in the living room and I wake up and I say, F! Okay, I, not F, but like the whole word, you know? Like, um, <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness. And so it, it disrupts your sleep. Um, and so for, for me, the worst days are when I am so tired because I'm waking up in the middle of the night it doesn't, re it doesn't um, happen as frequently anymore, but I'm, I'm agitated uh, with people. I have very little patience with my wife, with myself, with the people around me, and, and that's bad when you're in ministry. It can be bad when you're in ministry, because you, you need a lot of patience with people. Um, I, am, I am lazy. I don't want to do anything because, again, I'm exhausted, and, and I'm fighting these memories. Um, I, emotionally numb, I would say. I don't want to... I don't want to be affectionate to anyone um, because I'm trying to, I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to cope with my own, my own terrors, my own stress, my own negative self-talk that comes from the PTSD. And the, and the, and the, di the inner dialogue just 
recurs over and over and over and over. I'm an extrovert. My worst days, I don't want to talk to you because I'm too busy talking to myself and trying to convince myself that I'm not a victim, that I'm not worthy, that I am worthy of love, that, that I'm made in the image of God. Um, and so those are, that would be an example of a, a really bad day. So having a comorbid diagnosis is interesting. Um, so I would say, because sometimes, you know, uh, my depression might be worse or my anxiety. So um, a bad day of depression looks like I describe my depression as gray, not blue. I'm not teary, I'm not sad, I'm not gonna cry. I'm gray, I don't care. Um, even about myself, getting in the shower is hard, getting out of bed is hard, caring about anything, and being so irritable when my loving husband is trying to, oh, let's go walk the dog together, let's go have dinner together, and I'm like, I, I can't listen to you, I can't engage because I feel emotionally numb. Um, my, my coping capacity um, is overwhelmed right now, so I literally can't function. Um, and that's a huge component of mental illness. It's not just that it's in your head, it's you literally can't function in the world and in, in your relationships, um, in your role, in your job role, right, in anything. Um, as a student, I don't, you know, I don't wanna do schoolwork, I don't wanna go to work, I, um, it's very hard. It's like you just want to be brain dead for a little bit. Like you just want to watch TV or lay in bed and do nothing. Um, with anxiety, it's um, almost the opposite for me. If I if I get really anxious and I'm worrying a lot, I get keyed up and it's hard for me to sit still. Like I can't relax. It's time to go to sleep, but I don't want to go to bed because I know I'm going to keep um, thinking about this and worrying and I'm going to lay there all night. And you, you see my energy, I'm, you know, I'm keyed up. So I have to get up and clean or do something or walk around and I, and I irritate him because I'm like, I can't settle down and I keep thinking and talking about the same thing and I'm like, I'm worried and worried and worried and worried and it's, it's really hard to stop yourself, to stop your own thoughts, your own feelings um, and use some of those coping skills, right, from therapy. It's, it's, it's difficult to get yourself out of it and because you're just in this moment of emotion and thinking and feeling, it feels like a cloud that surrounds you. Um, and so that's both it. It's both up and down for me um, on my worst days. Uh, yeah, for me, it's, you know, a lot of the core of my depression and the things that I felt, they're always centered around um, worthlessness, a feeling of worthlessness and that things that I do don't matter or um, who I am doesn't really matter. Um, and... Uh, so I, I do, I, I, I kind of just tend to shut down a bit and I'll, I'll talk less, I'll interact less. I just don't really have an interest in anything. Um, and the, for me, the anxiety always manifests itself a little bit in kind of like the manic uh, of what you're describing, but um, I can't breathe. So I, I start to, I, I start to almost pant, um, and uh, so my breathing gets really rapid, my heart rate gets really rapid, and feels like you know, you're know you going over a hill over and over and over and over and over again, and that kind of sensation just keeps like going in my, in my chest. Uh, Before you answer, uh, this made me think of something. Here's something for you to take home as well. If you have friends who, who have a mental illness, remember them, okay? And I don't mean like in this like weird, esoteric, like they're in my mind, you make a shrine to them. Like if you're doing things, you're having a function, make sure you invite them out. And if they say no because they're having a problem, we have a tendency to assume that when people say no, they don't want to come, that they don't want to be involved, and so we stop inviting them to things. What I've noticed with my friends who struggle particularly with depression and anxiety is they will have friend groups that will just, they won't drop them, but they'll just kind of slowly drift away. And I get, like, one particular couple, I love them to death, and they are so frustrating to plan things with because you just don't know if one of them is going to be able to hang out that night. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not uncommon that 4 o'clock, and we're meeting at 6, I get a text. We can't make it. And there's a part of me, less now than used to be, 
that gets mad. It's like, oh, we bought all this food. Well, now I'm going to have to eat it, and I'm going to gain weight. <laughs> and, and it's like, I was looking forward to this. Like, there's a part of me that deals with that. But the much louder voice is, I'm not going to yell at them because I'm not that person. I get it. I understand. And then I tell myself, invite them back the next time. Don't, don't let them forget. Just because they're in a moment where they, don't, they can't hang out in that place, it doesn't mean they don't want to. It's just they can't. Uh, and I, I think that's why a lot of, of my friends have, have just lost connection to the church because the community feels like it should be their responsibility to connect to the church. It's on them. Bootstrap it up. Um, but that's just not how it works. Sorry. So, Nisha, you know, this is weird. Um, on Bryce's worst day, what is that like for you? What is that experience like in your world from your perspective? From my perspective, it's pretty hard um, just because you don't know when it's going to happen. And so there might be things scheduled or something that has to be taken care of where if he's feeling down or anxious, he needs to just be in his room. So you have to be very patient um, and just roll with it. And the art have learned to roll with it also that it's not because dad doesn't want to be there necessarily it's just because he's having a hard time right now or whatever the circumstances would be but like you were saying you also can't forget about him and what he's dealing with so you have to balance the being patient and kind of letting him work through it that day but yet still being there and making sure he's okay yeah. um other thing for you to take home, don't just remember them, remember their family. Uh, remember that the family is impacted by this as well. Uh, the couple that I was referencing earlier, sometimes I'll just text the husband. Uh, I haven't done it in a while because life. Um, but I just said, like, how do you feel when she cancels plans? Well, he's an introvert, so it's the greatest thing in the world for him. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. And, but I still care, like, you know, maybe he, maybe he misses hanging out with me. He never does. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, there's a book called Troubled Minds. I believe it's by Amy Simpson. I should know that because I've read it multiple times. Um, although I guess you don't read the author's name when you reread a book. Anyway, uh, she tells a story in there about she was growing up in a church. Her mother had bipolar disorder, uh, and she went to church by herself. And the only reason she stayed in faith, if I'm remembering the story correctly, is because, one, people did recognize her and they, they remembered her, but the problem was sometimes they also looked at her as the girl with the bipolar mom. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the second thing, another thing for you to do is remember these are, these are holistic people. They're not just their problems. They're not just their mental illness. You know, there's a, there's a show that was on the CW called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, it's a guilty pleasure of mine because it's a musical show and I love to sing. I sing about everything, mostly my cat. And she has a song in there called Diagnosis. And, and it's about the joy of knowing, like, I know who I belong to now, I belong to this group. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of healing that comes when a diagnosis is given and that journey takes a long time for some people. But at the same time, there's a label when it comes to a diagnosis. And then we start seeing them as the depression, uh, the panic attack, the PTSD, the wife of the depression. And so a question that I have for y'all, and I hope there's an answer to this that's good, um, is how does your mental illness make you a better minister? How is it, how do you, how is it redeemed in your experience? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, no, no. I so uh, like I was saying earlier, I've <laughs> my dad. Uh, I was asked to preach at their church in Fresno not long ago, and um, Jason Locke, who's the minister there, had asked me to preach. And so Jason and my dad were talking, and Jason said, "Hey, Bryce is going to preach," and my dad said, uh, "He's not going to talk about depression again." Is he? And because I, I talk about it a lot, and it's become sort of something that I do. So 
how it makes me a better minister is the fact that I, I am not afraid or even worried to tell people about some of the worst and hardest things of my life that I've done, that I've said, that I feel, that I still felt. And whenever I have the opportunity to share, there's a line of people waiting to talk to me. Um, when I first shared this at my home church in Fresno, there were a hundred people lined up on the wall and one guy couldn't even wait until church was over. He got up and walked over to me and knelt down beside me and said, I've been pressed forever. No one has ever talked about it in church and you just made it okay for me to be like this. Um, I've spoken at high schools where the parents don't believe in it. They think it doesn't exist and there's their children have approached me in the hallway when no one else is around and thanked me for just being willing to say, tell, say something that was true to them. And um, we, I, we haven't done it intentionally, I don't think, but we have made it unsafe for people within our churches to admit that they have problems and that they're broken and that they can't figure it out. And we can say all you want, all we want to, that no, no, it's safe. You can do it. You can do it. But we haven't made it safe. And wherever I am, that is my goal. And I make it safe by telling everyone what's wrong with me. And it makes it okay. If, if, a, if, a, if a minister can stand up and say, I didn't think I loved my wife. I think I was going to divorce. I didn't believe in God. You know, these things. And by the way, none of that was really, you know, nothing has been fixed and I'm still sick. Then it takes all the pressure off of them to have to have an answer as well. Um, so there's just, there's a blessing and God has, God has, God has blessed me not by taking it all away, but by giving me a voice about it. And that's, that's been how it's made me better. We often talk about you know, camp experiences and the highs you receive and, and encountering God when you're at your highest, right, at the mountaintop. But, but we also encounter God when we're at our lowest, mm -hmm. down in the valleys, right? And we intimately encounter God in those spaces. Um, and for me, that's been the case. I grew up in a really rough neighborhood, and the way I was raised was you just suck it up. We don't talk about mental health. There is mental, what is mental health? You're fine, you're just the way you are. Right? Uh, what we don't know is that, you know, I'm Vietnamese American, and a lot of Vietnamese uh, refugees uh, incur trauma from, from the Vietnam War, right? from the migration experience, from being in a foreign country where they don't feel like we don't, we feel like we don't belong. And, and so the, there's so much trauma that pervades Southeast Asian Americans, Hmong, Cambodians, Vietnamese Americans, Laotians. Um, and so, you, but, but you don't, it's unspoken, right? But when it's unspoken, it has a grip on you. And so, I, so we, we're, you know, we're always just talking about like, I just suck it up. Like, you're angry, you're just angry, you're, you're a man. Um, and, but when, when I married my wife, I realized like that, there's just something so off, like I'm not responding in a healthy way, you know, um, to conflict. And, and so for me, my diagnosis has helped me become a lot more aware of myself. It has helped me become a lot more introspective, to unpack the layers, to acknowledge the complexity of human emotions. Because for, I had always just felt angry. Anger, 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 anger. Rich, how are you, how are you doing, husband? I'm mad. You really mad? No, I'm just, yeah, it's mad, I'm angry. You made me angry. But, but exploring and unpacking my PTSD, my ADHD, and all these things, I'm now able to use language like I'm hurt. I feel neglected. Uh, you know, I feel insecure. And so as a result, it's helped me empathize with people better. Because I still have the tendency to say, suck it up. Especially people who are older than me. <laughs> who act like teens or but but see that's 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 that brokenness of me coming out like who act like teens or immature or whatever I mean what if they're dealing with mental illness as well right 
And so my mental illness reminds me that people are going through their stuff and we don't know what they're, they're suffering with. We don't know their family history. We don't know their experiences. And maybe we should empathize a little better because that's what Jesus did. Um, and so that's, I think that's how it's helped me become a better minister is empathy, compassion, self-awareness, introspection. Um, so being in ministry um, as a wife, um, there is definitely a perception that being a minister makes you more righteous, right? Makes you closer to God somehow. And therefore, being close to God equals perfection, right? Is, is you have less problems. Um, but we know from Paul himself, right? There, he had and struggled with that thorn in the flesh. And having my mental health diagnosis, it made me... Um, depend on God in a different way. Um, I, it, it taught me to question not only my, my thoughts and my emotions, um, but, to, but to rely on God, not just you know, his word and also who he is. Um, when I don't feel worthy, he, he tells me I am. When I don't feel lovable, he tells me I am. And so being able to trust him even when I can't trust myself. Um, and so I think, I think that relationship is deeper. Um, we're a very individualistic society, very independent, very um, do-it-yourself, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that sort of thing. Um, so questioning your own rationale, uh, your logic, um, and, and, and yeah, and, and not depending even on your own faith at times, just saying, please, God, like, I need you in this moment. Um, it makes you vulnerable to God in a new way, but it also makes you um, relatable to people and also vulnerable to other people. Um, it takes away that pride, I think, of I'm perfect, I can do it all. Some days you can't, and it really shows, and you're like, I, I just can't do this. And um, being, being able to say that as a, oh, a ministry couple, you know, it's like, no, we have, you know, we have needs too, and, and we're not perfect, and I need you to pray for me today, you know? Yeah. <laughs> As the minister, well, I think it, um, it does help show that you are more real, that you're not just this person up there teaching about God, but that you're sharing your experiences and sharing that you too do struggle. Um, I think it also allows you as a minister and the minister's family to accept help from other people, which a lot of times that is what people need to do. They need to do something to help. Um, often as a family, we're the ones offering the help and trying to meet people where they are, and I think it allows us to be the recipients of that. Uh, it, it's so very important for me this this whole idea of seeing people holistically. We have a member I won't tell you her name because I didn't ask her if I could um, but she has schizophrenia and she's been in our church for two years and man what a roller coaster our friendship is uh, she, she, it is not uncommon for her to hear voices to tell her to harm herself it is not uncommon for her to be getting out of a hospital having attempted suicide. By the grace of God and his mercy, she has yet to succeed. And um, I even one time said, I'm, I told her, I'm really glad you're bad at suicide. And she said, me too. <laughs> um, which is dark, but that's just how you survive in this world, I guess. One day, uh, we, she's part of this Bible study. We were going through like how to hear from God and doing some breathing exercises and like Yodavina and other things. And she said, I don't think I'm going to practice this. I said, okay, why's that? Because I have trouble discerning good voices from bad voices already. This is just not where I should go. Oh, wow, that is so astute of you. I, I thank you so much for blessing me with that. And I just felt good, like, oh, man, maybe she's on the rise. Uh, and then two weeks later, I find out she doesn't have a working driver's license because she read a passage in Revelation that told her not to have a driver's license. And so she comes up to me and says, I let my license expire because of this Bible passage, and now I can't get my medication. What do you think I should do? And I said, well, stop reading the book of Revelation, for one. <laughs> she's like, really? It's the Bible? Like, the Bible's great. Don't get me wrong. Love me some Bible. 
you are just not at a place where you should read the book of Revelation. Okay, that's good, because the dragon was scary. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you only got to the dragon, don't finish the book. Um, it's, it's, it's like, it's a roller coaster. Yeah. But she also loves our deaf ministry and goes up to them every Sunday to talk to them. She has her community. She has her place. And when I see her do that, like, I know... I don't know that our church is doing a lot of things right. That's me being cynical. I bet they're doing great things, and I just don't like to be happy. But I know <laughs> we're doing that right because we're letting her use her gifts. We're letting her be herself. Uh, but that's not easy in churches because sometimes, and I don't think we, well, some do, uh, sometimes churches talk about mental illness like it's a sin, yeah. like it's yeah. their fault. Right. Right. Uh, there's a local thing in one of the areas in California, in Fresno, that was offering this, like, self-help seminar it was like a really bad Christian AA thing and they listed struggle with pornography self-hurting depression and anxiety adultery it's like just the list of things like I don't some of those things are not like the other things guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you struggle with the, the if you have PTSD and you struggle with porn then this is a great product for you like yeah not so much but sometimes churches feel like that. And we, it's not, it, and it's spoken. It's outright said from pulpits. Yeah. So how do you help people get out of that, I can't say that word, bad theology? Like what would you say to someone who said, my depression is my fault or it's my sin? I would tell them to shut up. And stop <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't ever that say depends that. depends on the day, right? It depends on the day. Um, hyper aroused, then I would say shut up. Um, it's so complicated, right? One thing we do want to do, it's like we, we do want to deconstruct that idea that I suffer from PTSD or ADHD or whatever because of my sinfulness and that you can pray it away. Um, that's, that's unhealthy because it puts a lot of blame on, on me. And, and what I mean is this, like my PTSD is a result of someone else's sinfulness. And that's why I say it's complicated. Like, sin is fundamentally the problem of our broken world. Um, but how we look at that matters. And so sometimes we look at sin, but we don't look at the impact of sin on other people. And so my PSD, PTSD is a result of um, sexual assault, sexual abuse um, in my family, a result of also generational trauma from warfare, unresolved generational trauma and so it's so layered um, and so I, I think there's a level of like 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 sin is the fundamental problem but man this was done unto me and I think Sarah Barton shared an amazing message last night where she talked about sexual trauma that was caused by David on Bathsheba so we should look at that but there are other, on other hand what, what if it's just like a way of being what if my ADHD is just a way of being that it's not self-caused or anything, it's not my sinfulness, it's just, uh, maybe I'm just wired this way. And I'm not flourishing because we have designed our system to function one particular way and not create space for others. We have special gifts to offer. And I think ADHD can be a gift. But when you're forced as a kid to sit in one space for hours, for class, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so, so you don't function well in that kind of environment. Um, but but I, I disagree that, that it's a result of our sinfulness. It's just our world. It's a way of being. It's also, it's also a side effect of people's sin on you. That's only my response. Um, I personally see in that response of it's, it's a sin someone's lack of realization about how much they need Jesus. And we are, no matter, no matter who you are, whether you have mental depression, or whether you have depression or anxiety or whatever, we are all in the same spiritual state of being. And we are all sinners. We are all apart from God. We are all broken. Some people hide it better than others. But this idea that being Christian is a, is a process of eliminating the sin in your life is false. Because we can't. 
we could, Jesus isn't necessary. And Jesus is very necessary. We need a Savior for a reason. Because we are sinners and we are broken. And, but we have fostered this idea that being a Christian is about doing more things right. When perhaps what being a Christian is, is knowing how wrong things actually are. And telling a story of a life that is in the process of being redeemed from things that will never really go away until we see Jesus again. So this, uh, this question is difficult for me because, so I would respond to the church or a church member in a very different way than I would respond to the person with depression who thinks it's their fault. Because guilt and worthlessness and self-blame and all of that is a, goes hand in hand with depression and many mental illnesses. So I would, you know, I would respond to the person with, you know, just gentleness and love and help them figure out a way to get the treatment that they need because that's not going to go away in one conversation, right? That's a deep, that's deep self-work. Um, but to maybe the church member who holds this opinion. I would, I would just ask them, um, when is the last time they went to the doctor? You know, what medications are they on? Do they take maybe high blood pressure medicine? Do they um, uh, have heart disease or, right, diabetes? I mean, do we go up to somebody who um, needs a, a, you know, a knee replacement or a joint replacement and say, oh, no, no, we'll just pray over you. Yeah. You know, I think it, the mind is in the body. God made us as complex creatures, and science is still, you know, they're doing, you know, scientists are still doing um, study after study about how everything actually works together, right? Our mind, our, you know, our physical symptoms, um, all of it is deeply connected. We, we are holistic beings. So, um, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't take a physical, a purely physical illness and demonize someone for it. How can you demonize them um, when it's their brain or it's a combination of social um, experiences, right? Like violence against them or, um, you know, living through something traumatic or, um, right? I mean, how are you going to re-victimize them? Right. Um, so I would just explain to them, like, that's deeply hurtful. And, um, yeah, and, and just say, like, you're taking someone who's wounded and, and needs your love right now and you're hurting them. I would, to someone who thinks that they probably never experienced it, if they think that it's caused by sin, um, or that, or if they think your faith isn't strong enough because you're still struggling with it, um, like what was just said, you're not going to someone who has cancer healed, that they didn't pray hard enough, and that's why God's not healing them. Um, for the person who thinks it's their fault, I would encourage them about how it is a chemical thing. It's nothing that we choose to do, and that the medication and the doctors out there, I truly believe God gave them those talents and ability to discover all of this stuff, mm -hmm. and that that it's, it's making it so that someone with that condition can be functional, mm -hmm. and that I had a friend who said, I'm not going to take crazy pills, something like that. I told her, our family called them happy pills because they make, you, they make you better. And if she really knew how many of her friends were on medication for something along those lines, it would probably shock her. Yeah, that, that show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I swear I don't watch all the time, uh, has a song actually called Antidepressants are not a big deal and it's all about how most people are on something at some point in their life it is it is the thing we don't talk about but we all do and not in a bad way uh so we've got 10 minutes we're going to do this in that 10 minutes um how can we be better how can we be a better support uh to friends to family how can we have better conversations what do you guys think the best thing that anyone did for me and this was nisha nisha could tell you that she didn't know what she was doing and so therefore she kind of didn't try to do anything, which I know that sounds very 
that's sort of <laughs> not what she would normally think to do, but she let me be. And, um, you know, if someone is really depressed, we approach them as how, how can we fix this for you? And how can, how can this go away? And how can you be healed? And there was nothing that anybody could do for me or to me or about me. I wasn't some sort of problem to be solved. I wasn't some sort of, you know, something that you, would, you could just put the pieces back together and everything's fine. Um, and so that was, that was the primary thing, I think, was that Misha was there with me, she, was, she stayed with me, but she also didn't put these huge expectations for how fast I was going to get better or what me being better was going to look like. She just, walked on, she just walked that road with me, and we discovered it together. Um, and there's, you know, Nisha saved my life. The only reason I'm alive today is because of her. And I know, she's, she's amazing. But, but she trusted God, and she just knew that at some point I would come back to being human again. And she's accepted me for who I am all along. And that's what we can do for people is accept who they are and love them where they are and not put some sort of pretend expectation of health on top of them. That is so arbitrary <laughs> that it can hurt them more than help them. So I actually have a lot to say. Um, so um, for people with family members, for the family members, I would deeply encourage you and to encourage them to develop healthy boundaries. And what I mean by that is they need to also take care of themselves. Sometimes when you are maybe picking up more slack or um, you know, household chores, taking care of the children, um, whatever it is, um, doing that emotional work, being that comfort and that calm, being the presence, um, they can often overlook, right? They can get stuck in that caretaker role and overlook their own needs sometimes. And so I think just taking a pause and making sure that they take care of themselves, like how are you doing? Like, like we love you, we love Bryce, but how are you doing, Nisha? You know what I mean? Just being that friend for them. Um, I think also um, for ministers and their families especially, we are not just individuals, we're part of a group, and as a church, we should support healthy employment policies. That means making sure that ministers have good work-life balance. That means office hours that are realistic. Um, yeah. That means social work, right? System theory. Um, that means uh, making sure they have a sick leave that encompasses mental health days. Um, that if, you know, um, if I'm having a really bad day, I'm having a panic attack and I need Tian to come leave work and be with me, is that allowable? You know, can ministers and, and their spouses take care of their own families also? Um, so, you know, that definitely, like, our church is good to their own people. That's a huge thing for me. Um, and I would say also just know, um, be, be aware of, like, local therapists and counseling clinics and, like, have resources to people. Don't be afraid to talk about this. Be like, I'm not the best qualified person, but I'm willing to listen, and let's get you the help that you need. We will pray for you, and we will also get you your happy pills if you need them, right? We're talking about a multi, right? We will do whatever it takes, so, yeah. I think um, a couple of examples in my life. My interview weekend um, on Sunday evening, Shane, my the my lead minister, I'm I'm the young adult pastor there, uh, pulled me aside and was like, Hey, let's talk about your PTSD and um how does it impact you and all that. Uh and I thought he would say something like it's gonna be a problem. Instead he said, You know what, Tian? If you can't teach us Sunday morning because you had a crappy Saturday, call me up, we'll find someone to sub, go fishing because I know that's a way a coping mechanism. And I was I was so like taken aback. I was like, Are you are you okay? Are you, seriously? Like, uh, you know, and so that, that was very supportive. Policies um, and empathy and compassion and understanding. Um, and also just um, another way I think 
if you if you're really close with that person, if you have a close relationship, offer to pay for a few sessions of therapy. Yes. Because sometimes finances get in the way, mm-hmm. and of therapy. And guys, I my family has not done therapy. I and and they they look down on therapy, but. It has been such an immense help. We've I've done individual therapy. We've done marital therapy. I mean, we're we love therapy. We might have, it's it's like candy to us, and it, because it's very helpful. Yes. Um, and so, <laughs> and and my sister who also one of my sisters who also incurred sexual trauma, um, would open up, and I offered to pay for a few sessions of therapy, and she went. She's not there yet to go to follow through completely because her, her trauma is very, very severe and she's not ready to confront it. But, and so offering to pay for therapy, setting up a budget of some sort, right, because it can be pricey, finding and, and, and connecting to the community. And lastly, again, just, just following up with um, Bryce, just, just being there. Uh, last week I had something happen to me, a physical ailment, and that ADHD, is, it compounds things. It forces me to hyper-focus, so literally I spent five hours researching on web EMD and forums and like obsessing and next thing you know I'm just like it's midnight and it's like whoa and I'm so anxious I'm sweaty I'm angry I'm aggravated and she was like what can I do for you husband what can I do for you what do you need from me Um, and so I think that's very important is asking the person what they need from you Um, and there were times when I couldn't articulate what I needed but she was just is this okay do you do you need this she was being nurturing. And then I said no, and she was like, okay, I'll give you your space. <laughs> For me, my is like has been set up by just being there. Um, I learned with Bryce very early on that even asking what he wanted for dinner some nights was too much for him to take. So you kind of have to change your role and do things without asking even those simple questions. And then you have to find an outlet for you to express your, as the support person, to express what you're feeling and the questions you have. Um, I even told family members to stop calling him and asking them questions, Mm. because they want to know, are you feeling better? What are you doing next? Have you tried this? Which are all great questions, but at the state he was in, any one of those I asked them to ask me those and I would just say we don't know and that was fine Um, they didn't always push me on the questions as they might have with him from a church perspective of what you can do is just being there the church in Antioch was fabulous at this and I'm gonna cry Um, they would when he had to go to the hospital um, they met me at the hospital with my favorite food um, they took care of our boys so that I didn't have to come home and put them to bed and wake up and take them to school. Um, they would feed Bryce. He would just show up. Um, they didn't push for questions. They didn't, they just sat with us and talked about other stuff instead of just the depression. Thanks guys. Um, just, just a couple of things. Um, that they've said that I do want to reiterate. Uh, number one, don't put a uh, don't put a timetable on this. We 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 don't know how to hurt with people in the long term. We go into people who are struggling, and there's an unspoken assumption that this is going to be like a week, maybe a month, and then when it gets longer, we've probably forgotten about it. Honestly, not that we intend to. It's just it's just how some of us are. So don't put expectations on what healing looks like because it looks so different for everybody. Secondly, I cannot say this enough. Please, please encourage counseling. Please encourage good counseling yeah. and therapy. Yes. And yes. Um, finding a therapist is like dating. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Very much. chemistry matters. Yes. yes. And a lot of people, times people will go to a therapist and they don't like them and they give up on therapy. Mm. Tell them there is someone else better just for you yeah. and help them find that person. Yeah. That's yeah. Very our, our church has been so blessed yes. to let me do this where uh, I have con- contacts. We pay for, oh, we only pay for two, but we get a third one for free, so that's awesome. Um, we have three therapists, and we have four therapists. Three of them are guys, one of them is a woman. 
that was really important for me to find a, a female therapist because we kept sending women to these dude therapists and they're like, this isn't working. Like, I get that. Um, but get, get options if you can. Um, I love that Chien said help pay for it because medical insurance is such a thing and very few of them cover mental health yeah. and very few of them cover yeah. counseling and counseling is stupid expensive. If you want to make money, become a counselor apparently. Um, and the last thing that I've learned to embrace is celebrate small victories. Uh, John Laney has this great like run joke about how it's easier to do something than nothing. And it's like, you guys came here, congratulations, you did something, be very proud. I'm like, ha 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 ha. Some of my friends just showing up is huge for them. So if you see them, don't make a big deal about it. Be like, my depressed friend came to church today, yay. Just say, it's good to see you. Acknowledge their presence, celebrate the small victory. We are out of time, so we can't have any questions, which may or may not have been by design. Uh, I want to thank my panel. They are, they are my friends and I love them.